I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. This is the fourth episode of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame miniseries, uh, series within the series. We will talk about the ones that we've already covered here in a little bit, but this is the fourth episode and we're getting into the 1940s. This story was published in 1940. We'll get into that issue in a little bit. Um, I am your host, David Agronoff, if you're a Heinleiner who just came here for the first time, you haven't seen my podcast before, I am the author of uh, The Last Night to Kill Nazis, a vampire novel set on the last night of World War II. And, uh, but I host this here podcast, and I also host another podcast called Dickheads. Uh, we've covered three Robert Heinlein books on Dickheads, um, and I was not a big fan of any of them. Um, I'm not a big Heinleiner. Um, probably my favorite of the ones we covered was Starship Troopers, um, which um, I philosophically do not uh, like the take on it, but I thought it was a good novel. But we did that as an April Fool's episode of Dickheads um, as the Heinleiners. Uh, but we also covered Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and we also covered Stranger in a Strange Land. So if you want to hear me pontificate about uh, Heinlein, you can get more of that there. Um, our Starship Troopers episode is pretty famous because Anthony absolutely despised the book uh, with a hatred of like 10,000 burning suns. So he really let go on that one. Um, he's not a big Heinlein fan. But um, anyways, um, I have two guests here to talk about The Roads Must Roll. Um, Ted Hand, you wanted to be on this one. Right when I announced this, you said you wanted to talk about The Roads Must Roll. Ted Hand, tell the folks who you are and what you do. Uh, well, thanks, uh, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show again. Um, so I'm a public school teacher and independent scholar working on Philip K. Dick and uh, especially his weird mystical religious experiences. So um, uh, Heinlein is, is kind of a, a secondary interest for me, uh, especially in the way that he's an influence on Philip K. Dick uh, and especially Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who I do a lot of work on too. And um, uh, one of the things that just blows my mind about Heinlein is that um, even though he's this square, um, kind of hard science fiction, you know, um, engineering type. Uh, he was interested in Aleister Crowley. And, uh, you know, it, that becomes a big part of uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, right? This whole like weird mystical occult uh, kind of interest. And, you know, he was, uh, I was going to say that, you know, the connection with uh, L. Ron Hubbard, right, who stole away uh, Jack Parsons' wife, 
right? And and was involved in all this weird uh, LA occultism, like that, that Heinlein was tuned into that. I, I just find so fascinating. And um, I think plugs into the, uh, this whole like West Coast tech bro occultism thing that we see exemplified in like Mondo 2000 or whatever. Yeah, and we'll get into more details because that is the era that this was written in and came out of. So we'll get into more details after we do some of the biographical stuff about Heinlein. Um, Juan San Miguel, you are returning to Postcards from a Dying World. You came on for one of the Star Treks, didn't you? And you came on for V. I know you were on for V. I, I came on for V. I don't know if I came on to another show. It's been a while, though. Yeah, uh, I think you did one of the Star Treks with us, but I could be wrong. I, I know I wanted were, to. Yeah, <laughs> I know you were here for the 100th episode focused on V, uh, which the classic miniseries from the 1980s. Uh, one of my favorite episodes. So you're part of one of my favorite episodes. Um but Juan, tell the folks who you are and your science fiction bona fides. Okay. Name's Juan San Miguel. My day job is a government engineer. Uh, I've been active in fandom since my teens. I've been reading. I've done reviews. I've worked on cons. I've been to thirty over 30 world cons, two of them virtual. Uh, so I'm active and I am a big Heinlein fan. I've done, I've read most of his books and, and shorter works. I've, I think there are a few that are missing here and there. And I think Heinlein did influence on my life. I think I came at the right sweet spot in history, reading it before as an Xer, I think we had that sweet spot when he was alive. And before I think, uh, he went out of date, uh, I, or, Became more of a histor- uh, you know, became more of a historical mm. item, for lack of a better word. Well, and people might be catching on that um, what I'm doing here. I had a robotics professor on for Helena Lloyd, of course. One, I you were on my list because you're an engineer. <laughs> and with the story, I knew I needed somebody who had at least some kind of passing engineering knowledge because I have none I'm not an engineer that's nothing I know anything about so um so you could see why but also just your knowledge on Heinlein I knew you'd be a valuable person uh very active and involved in the science fiction community has your own you have your own science fiction book club locally there yeah it's a science fiction club in Orlando uh the Orlando area science fiction society um we do try to do both virtual and live meetings, although the next two meetings are virtual because the public library is doing some important stuff in the meeting room that they have. So uh, you can catch us. If you type in Orlando Science Fiction, we're usually the first one to come up in Google. Nice. All right. So let's talk about Robert Heinlein. Um, he was born on uh well actually before we get into him let's remember that the reason the reason for the season is the science fiction hall of fame um and we're covering all the stories so roads must roll is the next one the first of the 1940s um if you want more details on how they were selected and whatever go back to episode one where we covered uh a march and odyssey because we talked Steve Davidson and Cora Bulart and I about the process. So if you want to know how they were selected, but these were generally selected by members of SIPWA, the Science Fiction Writers Association, as their favorites, and each author got one story. So this is the one Heinlein story that 
was chosen as the Hall of Fame. The last episode that we did, Helena Loy, was one of the only stories that was not voted in that was selected by Robert Silverberg. This one was voted in. So, obviously, um, it plays an important role in science fiction, and we'll get to whether we think it's Hall of Fame worthy later. Heinlein was born July 7th, 1907 to Rex Heinlein and um, Bam Lynn Highland in Butler, Missouri. Uh, he was the third of seven children, so he was a part of a big family. He was a sixth generation German American. Um, and the, uh, you know, Heinlein would go on uh, incessantly about the fact that um, the Heinleins had fought in every American war, starting with the War of Independence. So his uh, family tradition of being a part of wars is obviously something that you see reflected in books like Starship Troopers, um, which is one of his most famous books. If you don't know Heinlein, he is most famous for having written Stranger in a Strange Land, Moon is a Heart's Mistress, Starship Troopers. I'm assuming if you're listening this far, you already have a passing knowledge of science fiction and would know these things, but maybe you don't. Um, this is where he comes from. Um, he is considered one of the most important science fiction writers of the 20th century. So um, he was going to be in this collection for sure. He spent most of his childhood in Kansas City, Missouri, Missouri, Missouri. Um, uh, long before the Chiefs started dominating in football over there. Um, his, uh, he had kind of a, a Bible Belt-ish upbringing, very um, religious upbringing, a very important thing for him and his um, development as um, a fan of space and all things science fictional was seeing Halley's Comet in 1910. And um, I think, you know, he was all, he was a reader from the beginning of your H.G. Wells, your Jules Verne. So he was an early adopter of science fiction, although um, he uh, did not have like one particular book that was one that that I could find that was like kind of the link. Unless Juan, do you know anything about his childhood with that? No, the, the the most thing I remember about the early Heinlein was that the family, the thing that stuck out to me, I only read the first, I never got around to reading the second half of the biography, and that was just for time, was the fact that his family lucked out that they, at, at least they first lucked out that they didn't lose anybody in World War One or in the epidemic that came after, although unfortunately one of the daughters, one of the younger daughters got run over by a wagon wheel, so, but Considering the fact that they didn't lose anybody to war or the biggest plague at the time, I think was something that I think affected, you know, that was important in his development. Wagon wheel, really. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, Clifford Samack rode a horse to high school. Um, so, you know, when we get into these older science fiction writers, we hear, um, you know, clear indications of the passage of time, right? Uh, Ted, anything on uh, Heinlein's childhood that you want to comment on? Or Oh, gosh, I'm not an expert on the biography. Well, that's okay. You don't need to be. Um, uh, I, I don't expect anyone to 
to do that except for me uh if they if they don't need to um in 1934 uh so Heinlein joined the navy and it was very important to him uh his service in the navy was like a big deal he joined in the early 30s he was discharged from the navy because of uh tuberculosis um and he had a lengthy hospitalization um and so supposedly because of his experience being bedridden uh, in one of his stories, he claims to have invented the waterbed in one of the stories. And um, you know how like science fiction writers a lot of times claim to have invented things that they wrote about long before, not, not because they made them, but because they thought of them, <laughs> right? Um, well, supposedly nobody could get a patent on the waterbed because he described it. I forget which book. I thought it was Stranger, but I could be wrong about that. And they, nobody could file a patent on it. In fact, when he died, I remember they actually they did a news break and they said, among other things, he invented the waterbed. Right. So um, maybe a greater claim to inventing the waterbed than Al Gore and the Internet. But, you know, uh, it's somewhat dubious. But either way, he got discharged and he ended up um, wanting to study mathematics and physics, which makes sense. And he ended up at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. And that's really important to the whole Heinlein trajectory because him ending up in LA is how he got involved with the science fictional community. And we know that he was reading um, the pulps um, like during his time in the Navy and that he was a science fiction reader, but, um, you know, his, uh, um, you know, love of, of the genre, it was, it was, it was less, you know, some of the writers got involved because they had like a serious love for the genre, but uh, I think with Heinlein, a lot of it was that he wanted to make money <laughs> and, you know, thought that this this was a way to make money and he tried writing a novel first which is unusual in that era because usually short stories is where you start and he wrote a novel called for us the living um and it was important because it started off the highland tradition of writing about social political issues because he was arguing for a universal basic income um in this first attempt at a novel it did not sell it got rejected lots of places but um you know he got enough feedback that uh well and he wrote it in 1939 and um supposedly he wrote it in about four days so if you wonder why it didn't sell maybe because he wrote it so goddamn fast well, um I, I read for us the living because somebody got decided to publish it um, years after his death. I forget what it was. And, and I bought a copy and it's, it's very rough. Let's put it that way. In fact, I told people you shouldn't read this unless you're a scholar because there's no, it's, it's rough. It's very early. It's he actually, you know, and it's, it's a rough work. It might it might have not have been a good idea to publish it. It should have been maybe put in the papers where an academic like David could take a look at it late, uh, <laughs> later on. 
Well, which is exactly my, uh, when people ask me about Earthshaker, the Phil K. Dick's first attempt at a novel, which by the way, is only two, two versions of two chapters. He wrote four chapters of Earthshaker, but it's really the first chapter twice. And I tell people all the time that it's, you really, people are like, someone should publish it. And I'm like, no, no, no one should publish it. Um, it is really just for academics. And um, my experience reading Earthshaker in the library was that um, I kept snorting and laughing out loud in the library and getting like looks from the um, Cal State Fullerton um, librarians. So, um, and I assume that uh for us the living is very similar okay so you have read it then one well that's that's interesting um i i i probably would read it if i had the shot but uh he was 31 when he wrote it so in his first attempt and then he wrote a novella called if this goes on was next and i'm getting this out of astounding <laughs> uh alec neville lee's uh fantastic book he's been on this series he was in our second episode on john w campbell's twilight um and i think his first his first story to sell to astounding was lifeline um and then his second story was roads must roll so um have you have either of you read uh lifeline because i have not read that i have i mean it's a it's an idea story where a guy i believe his name is panero invents a device which will tell you when you will die not how you will die but when you will die how much of a lifespan you're gonna have and of course this throws the actuary world into chaos and the results of what that was right and so Lifeline was written for a contest for Astounding. It wasn't actually um, submitted straight up. It was in a contest and he was the first place prize winner. Um, and then I believe that kind of opened up the door with Campbell for him to submit eventually uh, Roads Must Roll. So um but Lifeline plays obviously an important role in this because it's his first story. Um, and But I think all these early stories, when you're talking about how early we are in this, um, uh, in, in, in Heinlein's journey, everyone should, I mean, it's here, it's being honored in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, but keep in mind, this was really only his second professional, or really his first professional sale, to be honest with you, because the first one was a contest. Are you sure about the contest? I thought he, I thought the story was, he wrote it for the contest, but he didn't submit it because he thought it was too good for the contest and tried to sell it directly. That's how I remember it, but I could be wrong. Uh, I believe, according to my notes, it was the first place prize. Okay. I. Oh, wait, no, you were right. You're right. Now I'm looking at my notes closer. He wrote it for the contest and pulled it out of the contest because he wanted to get because it was because the pay was not great for the contest and he did sell it. You are correct. So he got that one cent a word. Yeah. So uh, he got the money for that one. So Lifeline was number one. But keep in mind at when we're breaking this down, 
this was really only his second sale. So uh, Heinlein would go on to be, uh, you know, a much more skilled writer. And certainly when we talk about stories that we think maybe, you know, which ones deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, maybe we'll find some other stories we think are a little better. Um, he, he sold this one. Um, and then his next, his third story was Misfit. And, um, but it really kind of, these stories are kind of showing his like social political nature from the very beginning and selling these kind of social sci-fi stories. Um, so before we get into the actual issue, let's talk about the environment that Heinlein was writing in. Um, Heinlein was a part of a, like, much like what Juan is doing today with his science fiction group in Orlando, uh, a group of writers in LA had their science fiction club where they hung out. This was a common thing at the time. Um, in New York City at the time, we had the Futurians, which has your Frederick Pauls, your Judith Merrills, your Isaac Asimovs, that were all hanging out, um, doing things together, um, talking about science fiction, sharing, critiquing each other's work. CM Cornbluth is another one that was part of that. And eventually in New, in New York, the Futurians fell apart and they had another one called the Hydra Club. Um, eventually, Tony Boucher would do one in the Bay Area, which would meet on Thursday nights on Dana Street at his house. But at this time, Boucher was living in L.A. Uh, like Heinlein and uh, L. Ron Hubbard and um, the Kuttners, so, which would be your Henry Kuttner and C.L. Moore. These are all people that were part of the Minyana Literary Society. This is a lot of really heavyweight science fiction writers, um, Lee Brackett, Edmund Hamilton, eventually, um, you know, so all these science fiction and Forrest J. Ackerman, they're all hanging out um, in the science fiction club. And they were also hanging out with Jack Parsons, who would go on to found the Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, and that's when we're going to get into the stuff Ted's really excited to talk about. But this crew was fictionalized and kind of lampooned in Tony Boucher's um, mystery novel, Rocket to the Morgue, which is a Knives Out style, locked room, Agatha Christie type uh, murder mystery. Um, this is basically science fiction history right here. If you can, um, and now I'm about to publish an article um, in my Amazing Stories column where I talk about this book and I talk about the different um, fictional names and how they correspond with real life people and Rocket to the Morgue. You can learn a lot about the Minyana Literary Society by reading this book. This book rules. Um, it's not the best murder mystery, but as an artifact of science fiction, it's really good. Um, and so this is the 2019 edition that I'm holding up here on for the YouTube watchers. And it has an introduction by homie of the podcast, F. Paul Wilson, who was one of our first guests on the show. Um, and it's really, really good. We covered that in detail and Tony Boucher in detail on Dickheads on the Shout Out to Tony episode, which is a panel of um, science fiction dignitaries talking about Tony Boucher. But we're here to talk about Heinlein. 
So Heinlein was a part of this group. He was a really big and active part of this group. And so this is where he learned the science fiction community. He learned how to submit stories. He got a lot of advice on how to write. And so we're talking 39 through 41 is when the Minyana Society was super active. They didn't just talk about science fiction. They had a lot of high profile guests come to talk to their meetings. Um, writers would come from all over the country to visit LA and they would be guests. Robert Block, for example, would come from Milwaukee on the bus and like visit. But they had a lot of physicists and people from Caltech and um, you know, rockets, real rocket scientists who would come to these literary society meetings. And so they were a big deal. And this is a heavy part of the environment in which Heinlein was writing from. And I think it's important to understand what the Minyana Literary Society meant for like the percolating. When you read this story, you should know that this was happening in this guy's life when he was writing this, in my opinion. Ted, you're bursting at the seams to talk about this era. I know it. So what are your thoughts on the Minyana Literary Society? Well, I mean, I don't know a lot about the Literary Society, but I know a bit about Jack Parsons and, um, and you know, and Hubbard, right? And, and the way that in Los Angeles at the time, and this is not like when I was a kid and I learned about this stuff, you know, my mind was blown like, wait, it's the 1940s and there's this like, sort of free love thing happening that informed what Heinlein was doing in Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, so Aleister Crowley was this occultist who died in 1947, um, flourished in like the, you know, teens and 20s. And uh, he was an influence on Jack Parsons, who was sort of like an acolyte of this guy's um, occult society. And I guess he had his his wife stolen from him by by Hubbard, who took her off to go, you know, flit about on on his yacht and whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, and Parsons, I guess, eventually blows himself up in a lab experiment where he's like trying to reproduce some kind of alchemy, right? Where he like apparently like dropped a uh, you know dropped a, a a beaker or something and, and blew himself up. Uh, so. <laughs> As one does. Yeah, as as one does, you know, <laughs> at the time. And, and Parsons was this legitimate, um, you know, genius. Uh, it, uh, it, it sort of reminds me of the, the portrayal of Oppenheimer in that recent movie, right? Um, where, like, he's involved in this, you know, communist society and he's, uh, he's this womanizer, right? Um, uh, so, you know, the, the question that I have is, like, how early did Heinlein get involved in, uh, or at least take an interest in, uh, the, these kind of uncommon arrangements among um, uh, among creative bohemian types? Well, it seems like this was starting around '39, like this whole like group and 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 thing, and and um, I I know that there's more writings about. You know, because there there is a tradition in obviously the Futurians are a tradition in New York, but LA has a, a long tradition of writers groups in different generations. Eventually, Bradbury, Matheson, Nolan, and that that crew would become the the 
California sorcerers, right? And, um, you know, so there's different generations of this, but the Minyana Literary Society, which what, what made them very different was just, you know, because they were starting to get power as, you know, writers as they were getting notoriety, not power, but notoriety as pulp writers, but they were having these like really crazy associations with different groups and communities and so on and so forth. But because you're in LA, there's all kinds of that stuff happening. And, you know, when we did our Richard Matheson episode, um, you know, David Scow was talking about how he, he learned about how they would have all kinds, the California sorcerers would get all kinds of interesting guests hanging around just because it's LA. And for example, Rod Serling and William Shatner are dropping by to, you know, hang out and, you know, race fast cars, um, <laughs> you know, with these guys. So, you know, there's all kinds of really interesting stuff happening on, I, you know, how much of that, you know, is fictionalized in Rocket to the Morgue and how much is believable. Um, I don't know. I don't know how much license Tony Boucher was taking with that. But, um, you know, far more interesting group than the one he, well, I don't know, because the group he gathered in Berkeley was pretty interesting, too, with your Phil K. Dick and Marion Zimmer Bradley, too, so... So um, I've got one quick comment about that that just I'm glad you said the Berkeley thing. Um, so if you listen to the Ray Nelson interview uh, where Ray Nelson was interviewed by Ann Dick or somebody and talks about Philip K. Dick, I think it was Ann's research for her book. Uh, Nelson talks about how Philip K. Dick and his sort of circle would have philosophical romances with each other's wives. And so like, like Dick and... Nelson's wife like kind of carried on in this like what we might today call an emotional affair um, where they had these sort of open relationships and um, and and you know the way Dick was such a sort of like I mean he was so forward with women and he, oh you're such a fox right and uh, but apparently it would be it would be a so-called philosophical romance where it was like platonic but they were like acting as if they were lovers and kind of connecting over literature or music or whatever they were interested in so you know well, it I wasn't mean, philosophical with Grania Davis <laughs> your, your your pal Grania so right yeah um and I wish that Grania had had told me more about that uh, that scene but unfortunately uh, she passed away a few weeks after she decided finally that I could interview her so we'll never know well, yeah, and so, but that Minyana Literary Society, I don't know how much of the free, I, I haven't seen a lot of writings about the free love stuff, but what I do know is that they were talking to powerful people with engineering backgrounds and, and, and things like that. And I think for, for roads must roll and what we're talking about today, it's most important to know that he was getting that kind of intellectual stimulation for those types of of things so you know when people are like wow you know the rocket science is pretty far ahead thinking for the 1930s or 19 or for the early 40s or whatever you know that's what a lot of it is so you take a look at a story like nerves by lester del rey and you're like wow he really like nailed a lot of aspects of nuclear power before it was even supposed to happen but i'm i bet it's things like meetings 
at these types of things where like there are a few drinks are had and, and engineers start like blabbing to the science fiction writers and the next thing you know, you've got a story. So I think the role of the Minyana Literary Society in Rose Must Roll is, 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 is a thing, you know. But um, one, what do you know about the Minyana Literary Society and, and what do you think of its impact on science fiction in general? I'm a bit weak. I did read Rocket to the Morgue, but it was a long time ago. I should reread it. And I think it was mentioned, obviously, in the first chapter, in, in the first volume, I should say, of the of the Heinlein biography. But I can't, I'm not sure of how to gauge an impact, although obviously it's very good for writers to, you know, have uh, groups to workshop and bounce ideas off of. So, but I, I don't feel comfortable saying what kind of impact it made. Right. And so, for example, like I just opened a one page of my Rocket to the Morgue and you can see I highlighted my um, and this is a scene that takes place on Halloween in 1941. And he explains that, you know, the Minyana Literary Society, Austin Carter stated calling it that because people talk about the terrific honey of a story they're going to write tomorrow. And Austin Carter was the Heinlein stand in, I believe um if my memory serves but you know these are i mean he's really writing directly about about um the history of it all and and the genre so i, I really recommend this book too so so my question um if i can cut in real quick uh sure. about the manana society and heinlein's discussions with engineers is um you know, and, and Rhodes Must Roll, we're so concerned with the working conditions of, of engineers, right? And yeah. um, I'm thinking of Oppenheimer once again and how they were sort of like rock stars, like physicists were like these weird rock stars and they could kind of get away with, with murder because of this like position in society that they had. Um, you know, did Heinlein have a sense of the engineer as as like a rock star? You know, these guys that he was hanging out with. What what did what were you know were were there discussions about working conditions of engineers? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, what little we know, um, you know that that's not an angle Boucher's going at in uh, Rocket to the Morgue, you know, but. Um, and by the way, I should say, I do, I, now that I'm looking at my notes, I do have, yeah, Austin Carter is clearly Heinlein. Um, D. Vance Winpool is Hubbard. Uh, Halsted Pin is the, is uh, a fictionalized version of Forrest Ackerman. And then there's a character named Don Stewart, who's obviously um, John W. Campbell, because that was one of his pen names. And um, one thing that should be interesting to me too, is that his second professional sale is in 1940 and Heinlein was already a guest of honor a year later at the Denver Science Fiction Convention. Um, you know, at, at one year after selling his first story, which is kind of fascinating. Well, I thought he sold um, Lifeline in 39. Am I wrong about that? Mm, yes, you are okay. right. So it would have been two years. Yeah, two years. I mean, I think one of the reasons Heinlein had to get a lot of pseudonyms was I guess he was able to sell what Campbell wanted. And so, I mean, he would have multiple stories with different names. I don't know if that happened in, in 40, that he had already, you know, gotten a good reputation uh, right. that he would be guest of honor. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's 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 strange, but well, let's look at the issues. So, for those of you who are listening to the audio, this is the portion where some of this might not make a lot of sense if you're only listening to the audio. Um, if you're watching YouTube, we're going to actually look um, at the issue, and there it is. This is the cover article, uh, or the cover um, art for the roads must roll. Uh, so it was June of 1940. So, um, you know, Hitler only invaded Poland a year earlier, a uh, year and a couple months change. Uh, you buy this issue for 20 cents. Um, and uh, what do you guys think of this cover art? Well, actually, I'm, I'm surprised because I think I might have got either a publisher use this for a cover of if this must go on or i just misremembered it i thought this was this i thought this was the if this goes on cover for right. some reason yeah and it's interesting because you have these wheeled vehicles but it's not the roads rolling too so like um but uh uh heinlein made the cover for his second um appearance which is pretty amazing i think people figured out right away this guy's got got something so let's take a look inside the issue. Let's look at the ads. Listerine. <laughs> we have that beautiful Listerine ad. Spark plugs. Uh, you know, Smith and Street had no control over what ads, or they were, or uh, the editors had like. Um, uh, so let's look at the uh, table of contents. So roads must roll. Open the issue. Um. I think the only really other notable entry, I don't know, uh, Juan, if you have anything on any of these other stories, but the only other one that really stands out to me is Hubbard. And that's, this was the third and final serialization of the final blackout, which was in my, it is in my opinion, my favorite L. Ron Hubbard novel. And if no one, has read the final blackout. Uh, the final blackout was is about World War II, written before it happened, and it kind of talks about like this charismatic kind of anarchist general and uh, nuclear war. And um, it is less of an impressive thing if you're not looking back on the history and looking at that he was writing this. Um, but you know, obviously in 1930, mostly 1939 is when he wrote it. It was published, obviously, in three issues of Astounding. Three issues of Astounding. This was the third and final serialization. So, in a lot of these discussions of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, we look at what else was there. Now, um, Final Blackout to me might be the better of the stories, but it's a serialization of a novel. So when you're talking about short stories, you know, or novelettes, I guess you say, uh, a novelette is really just a short, a very long short story. So I don't really think The Roads Must Roll constitutes a novella. It's close, um, but I think it's mostly a short story. And as far as the other stories, I don't know any of these um, deputy correspondent. The uh, no, I don't uh, recognize these the names either. Yeah, and uh, Norman L. Knight, I don't know him. Don't know any of these guys. So, you know, uh, um, 
So sorry if I don't know if Cora Bullard's out there screaming at us. No, that story is very important. Uh, <laughs> but for me, I don't know any of these other stories. I just know Final Blackout. But I will say you can get Final Blackout as a paperback. Unfortunately, your money is going to be going to the Church of Scientology if you buy a new one. But if you can find it at a library or whatever, if you don't want to give Scientology your money, and I certainly understand that, um, I highly recommend reading Final Blackout. Um, it's a long-running joke on the Dickheads podcast that Anthony promised me he was going to read the final blackout in the first year of the podcast and has still not read the final blackout. So um, so if you guys want to tweet at Anthony uh, that he still hasn't read the final blackout, you can do that. <laughs> um, he's still not read it. So read how these men got better jobs. Look what radio offers you. I will train you at home in your spare time for a good job in radio. So an early ad for podcasting. Um, <laughs> and then here it is. The original appearance of the roads must roll. The higher civils. Um, you want me to zoom it in here, guys? No, no, I'm good. I just wanted to take a look at the art. Yeah, it's pretty good art. Um, we specialize in giving people nightmares, the ad for unknown there on the left too, uh, which is a great ad. The higher civilization becomes the more dependent on each unit and the more of it, and more of it as at the mercy of the few. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting take, but, um, and, I'm not sure if there's other art in it. We can flip through it a little bit. So if yeah. anyone wants to look at this, this is, yeah, there's a few more here. The patrol had him before he could reach the signal box to sound the alarm, but somewhere ahead, another had spotted them. Um, so they're putting a lot of, money and energy into this story. Here's another piece of artwork. Um, so at least three illustrations so far. Four. Um, yeah, four illustrations in, in here. And, um, oh, and then here's the next story. Deputy Correspondent. That looks interesting. There's some kind of creature throwing a pyramid. Maybe we'll have to go back and read Deputy Correspondent at some point. Um, but yeah, the roads must roll. So it took up the first 38 pages of the magazine, or 30 pages, give or take, without the ads. So uh, yeah, that's how it appeared. So if you want to see this, it's on the Internet Archive. You can search by uh, June 1940 Astounding and you will find it. So there it is. Um, so it's actually not a super great issue of Astounding. Some of these that we've covered in the 1930s series and of Weird Tales and of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, there's like four or five bangers all <laughs> in one issue. And here I would say... I mean, I haven't read the other stories, but there's two classics uh, involved here, The Final Blackout and Roads Must Roll. So 
um you know that's that that is a big deal that there's another classic but really only the two so now let's get into the story of roads must roll it was only at a um adapted once it's never been a movie is i was adapted for radio for x minus one 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 you know uh and uh uh which by the way was the first um radio series or the first adaptations of philip k dick we got two which we have um uh are planning on covering soon on the dickhead podcast but stay tuned for that uh i know colony and i can't remember the other one that the two there were two philip k dick adaptations one of which he adapted himself um and so it was his first time writing for another medium uh but highland did not uh adapt this one but i will say this x minus one is a very faithful adaptation it is very close to the story um and so um does anybody want to give kind of a refresher of what the story is about if somebody decided to just listen to us and not actually read the story Juan, are you interested in doing that uh i'll try um essentially we're in the future i'd say if I my guess is right, 40 years into the future from publication, uh, essentially uh, 70s cars... or 80s, Some, sometimes in the 70s or 80s. So about yeah. 40, 50 years out. Yeah. OK. And so uh, the car has been replaced by these uh, mobile roads. And uh, we we stumble on an early meeting of the uh, techs who keep the roads running and somebody is suggesting that maybe if their demands are not met uh they should do something about it and then we then switch over to the chief engineer who finds out that something has happened in sacramento and some of the roads are not rolling and they got to fix that and that's the main problem of the story of trying to fix it i mean would you guys agree that's a good summation? I'm I'm very bad at summations sometimes because I try not to give the spoiler away on it, even if it's something old like this. Yeah, and we're gonna spoil, so you might as well. Uh, uh yeah. So basically, there's kind of a um like union type movement that is like, you know, striking against like the tyranny of the roadish type thing of like you know of the system being this way. Um, and I read it a couple weeks ago, and I have to say, this is my first time reading The Roads Must Roll, which um, I hadn't read it before this. And, you know, admittedly, I've said I'm not much of a Heinleiner. Um, you know, I'm a PKD, John Bruner, Le Guin guy. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not much of a Heinlein fan. However, I will say that I, I did think the story had a lot of really neat ideas, and considering when it was written, I think it it has a lot of really good and interesting things to say. Ted, did we miss anything that you think is really important? Yeah, so what I want to add is that um, there's sort of two casts of, of workers who work on the roads, right? Mm -hmm. There's the engineer class, and then there is the, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what you call the like blue collar guys. I would call um, them techs. Yeah, and the techs are sort of like resentful, of the engineers who have kind of better working conditions. And um, uh, it's also sort of an allegory for the Teamsters, you know, like Jimmy Hoffa being mobbed up and and um, the way that sort of like the, the trucking lobby can kind of like bring the nation to its knees, right? Um, uh, so 
this weird reckoning of like of of power um, being in a union and and the sort of logic of union busting. I mean, I think if you were to lampoon this story, you might call it the boots must be licked, uh, right? <laughs> Where it's like, um, you know, we have to crack down on workers who are trying to um, agitate for better conditions because our whole society runs on these people being exploited, right? And, you know, this goes for workers in general, but especially once some um, once society starts running on 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 technology, uh, the you know the technology workers become so essential, right? Right, and and this this is one of the things for me about Heinlein that's so confusing for me because I don't I his 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 politics and his views are so all over the place because yes it has this kind of bootlicking kind of anti-union like we got to keep the roads rolling and I know he's not necessarily saying that's how he feels but that's how the characters feel. But we know that he becomes like this hardcore libertarian eventually. Um, and this is clearly before he established those libertarian views, I think, at least it seems to me. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I, I, I do have to question one thing, and this might get my friend Olaf from the Hugo Book Club. We might have to disagree on this because I find it interesting. That, I mean, I, I, I took some notes and the thing is they seem to defend that conditions were bad in 1960 that's why i say it's in the 80s and they're talking about hey we had this big strike in the 60s and we fixed up a lot of things the conditions are better and they are and they argue but then i question is this a strike because usually when you have a strike and i'm basing it on what i've seen in the recent sag after a, a writer's guild strike you usually say hey we're done negotiating we're now going to strike we never get an ultimatum from the workers we see a meeting where a certain shady individual is is doing something we only find out that there's been a work stoppage because some of the roads start malfunctioning or not operating so right. i just in, feels in it, it just doesn't though, feel like a strike or traditional yeah, no, strike. in the radio story there's somebody who says we gotta take direct action and so you definitely see them as like doing sabotage more than than striking i guess you could say and then it's really unclear whether heinlein is and and i think this is one of the best things about the writing of it it's unclear whether heinlein is for or against the roads or necessarily or for or against the workers as you 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 kind of see some of the there's kind of a push pull between all the views of the characters in the story and and you know he could be coming from different points of views on that. At least, at least I saw it that way. I don't well, know what, one of the other things I took notes on is when Gaines, who is our lead engineer, he's the guy who's in charge of the roads, at least of the West Coast, maybe of the whole country. Uh, he doesn't want anybody killed. He tells people to use weapons of non-lethal intent to gas, you know, the people when they're going to try to retake control of Sacramento. So I, I mean, at least. You know, we're not going out there with guns blazing, you know, shooting people. I mean, I mean, I don't know what the strikes, the the labor actions in Heinlein's lifetime uh, would have influenced him. Uh, but at least, you know, you're you're trying not to get anybody hurt. He doesn't need to get hurt. It seems like we have a clear villain of Van Klink or no, Van Klink, I believe his name is. Is that how his name was pronounced on the radio? Uh, I just listened to it I, and I don't, I, I don't remember. <laughs> well, essentially we got this guy who has, and I don't know, it's, who it comes up with this thing called functionalism, which 
I just reread it briefly and correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like, hey, your function in society lets you to lord it on other people's function who might not be as important. And 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 I don't know if this was a real thing or not because it said it was published in 1930. And there were, I think, a lot of movements. I mean, I think, uh, correct again, correct me if I'm wrong. Huey Long, you know, had the Kingfish or Every Man's a King movement in Louisiana, and you know, Heinlein suggested everybody, you know, had a crackpot theory of how to fix the world in six easy steps in the 30s. Well, so the I don't 30s know. was a very was a very radical time. There were yeah, other, unstable. Yeah, and there was a lot of cracking down on unions. So, so that was that was a thing. I mean, I, we had in San Diego there were free speech fights as early as the nineteen teens, like with the unions. So, um, with, but also wasn't it the growth of unions with the Federal Labor Act and the unionizing of Hollywood at that time? I again correct. I'm basing it on recent things i heard about the history of yeah. strikes and um the fact well, that there was an animators union and disney would eventually get absorbed into it um in the mid 40s yeah there was clearly a lot to for him to draw uh draw on for this era uh, specifically about like how labor unions were treated and such so um you know, I, I think it's one of the cool things about the story that it's commenting on these things and that it has things to say about it. But um, I've got two quick points to make on that. Um, sure. I, first of all, I would agree with you that it is very successful um, as uh, an accessible allegory of union power. Right. Um, it's uh, when you've said, you know, I'm going to be reading this story. I just, you know, tweeted right back at you because I'm like, I remember reading that as a, as a kid. It was like really hard for me to get into science fiction stories from back in the day, but I was super interested, you know, and this was a story that like I remember the whole scene with where they're stepping onto the roads and you kind of like roads are kind of next to each other, like one moving faster than the other so that you can kind of step up your speed if you want to be, you know, get onto the 100 mile an hour road, you, you, you get onto the 60 mile an hour, then you step over to the 65, then you step over to the, like, this was such a uh, memorable image for me that, you know, 30 years later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that story. Uh, so I think that, you know, whatever we think of his politics, it's, um, it's a marvelously successful allegory that like makes this stuff real to people that helps you to understand uh, these social issues um, and how that uh, how like in terms of like the way a science fiction story plays with um, how technology impacts our lives and, and the kind of structure of society. Um, but then to the earlier question of, of the, the political stance and you know, like where does Heinlein stand in all this? I think that and there's kind of a spoiler alert here. So plug your ears if you don't want it, the ending spoiled. But, you know, the ending. If you're here, you, you're getting the spoil. We're Go the ahead. Way, the way that our hero gets the better of the revolutionary villain in the ending, you know, is that he kind of understands his psychology. And uh, the revolutionary is this kind of like callow and selfish kind of a guy that is so like easily tricked, you know. Um, so in terms of this question of uh, Heinlein's libertarianism and like, um, what does this say about like the kind of origins of, you know, tech bro sci-fi fandom um, in, you know, people like Elon Musk or whatever the way they misunderstand robinson's mars trilogy all that um you know it's really interesting to see the way these revolutionaries who are agitating for better working conditions are in fact really selfish and shitty kind of people 
Right. Well, yeah. And, and see, that's the thing is whenever Heinlein over the years, he's writing, you know, Moon is the Heart's Mistress is very clearly libertarian, right? Stranger in a Strange Land is very much like kind of like a free love type type thing. And then you have Starship Troopers, which is like crypto fascist, like, you I, know. I got to argue about that because it is, it, it's not fascist. It's a democracy. Once you get out of the service, you, you're allowed to vote. I, I, I always, it, it, it is not a fascist society. Uh, now, whether you argue, I mean, I think the big argument of that book Ooh. is. Oh, whether, I, I so disagree with you. <laughs> but go fair ahead. Fair enough. I mean, the thing is, it's. I think it's just questioning what is the rule of the citizen and the society. I mean, I, I, I'm actually a patron of David Gerald, and David Gerald was very influenced by Heinlein stylistically. Um, and and I think he always feels that that book is always misunderstood. And it's and unfortunately, Paul Verhoeven had a weird take on it because I think. Well, he satirized know, he had a weird, it. He satirized it, and you know, and I, I, I think Gerald said a long time ago, had he had a chance to write the script, he would have presented what Heinlein did present the ideas, and you can argue for or against them. But I, I do want to say well, another point. I actually the... like Starship Troopers. I just don't agree with what I think is the point, but. But, but yeah, I do want to point out an interesting thing about this story, and I'm wondering if I'm getting ahead of myself of why it's in here, because it seems like people, I remember it being at a panel at a con, and I think people seem to fixate on the roads themselves. They forget that it was about a labor struggle or, you know, a political struggle or, you know, somebody taking over. They think about the roads. It seems like that that's what pops into people's mind. They forget about, I think, what the plot was. They just said, "Ooh, interesting gadget," or the gadget is, you know, overshadows the story. Yeah, and we should be clear: the gadget is pretty much a MacGuffin in this story. It doesn't, it it, it doesn't even make like a ton of sense. <laughs> like, well, he tries, he tries to, he tries yeah. to defend it. I think, I I think he might have, you know, I mean, he he goes on a very. Um, exposition and i don't mind exposition scenes I'm, I'm, I'm very pro exposition and you know he goes on an exposition of the fall of what he believed would lead to the demise of the american car which obviously didn't happen for for various reasons and he defends that and you know it tries to he does go in world build of why we have these roads and why yeah. they're practical and they're part of the national interest well, right. this, this plugs into like what is such a current social problem, you know, where it sort of even back then he saw that there's this problem with urban sprawl, you know, there's this problem with cars and traffic and whatever. And the only reason that those problems were never solved is that we have such a strong auto industry lobby, right? <laughs> right. Well, and you, you know that if the roads, if the moving roads existed in this, um, they would have a lobby they would have like powerful forces but i got the impression that they weren't everywhere that this was like kind of a california innovation and i could be wrong about that but um it's one of the reasons why i think it it takes place in california but then also you have the interesting thing of the guy from australia coming to uh check out the roads just in time to see him blow up and all that stuff um 
it's an interesting part of the 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 story of it not just like the points he was trying to make and i could be wrong about that whole just california thing but that's kind of the impression i got on that but um i could be wrong totally so um but uh yeah so um anything else really on the themes of the story this one didn't like i the characters were interesting but a little a little like there wasn't like a too deep kind of thing going on with the characters this is more of a gee whiz idea story um so i think if with a little bit stronger characters it might have been a stronger story but i i don't know what do you guys think well, I think we have three characters of note. We got Larry Gaines, who's our main uh, POV character throughout most of the story, who's try who's the head engineer of the roads and trying to solve the problem. And again, trying to solve the problem non-violently and equitably and using his brains. I mean, uh, Ted is right. He did, you know, psych the guy out into taking, then getting control of the situation. And then we, we obviously have Van, Van Keek, who is our our villain who has taken over the Sacramento station and he declares you know what his thesis is of functionalism and the other major character uh, is Harvey who seems to be representative of the good worker i mean he's the one who challenges uh Van Cleek during the union meeting in the first section of the book and saying that hey things are good you know we could get maybe you know they're better than they were 20 years ago when i went on strike and you know, maybe we should work this out, you know, try to work it out in a more less disruptive way. Although strikes are meant to be disruptive. But again, I don't know if this, the more, as I said, since they didn't declare a strike, is it a strike? Right. Well, it's it's more of a direct action, really, to be honest with you. It's more of sabotage than, than it is that. So, um, but yeah, Ted, anything on the characters or the one thing that kind of interested me, and this is like not central, but but this was, uh, at, you know, in listening to the uh, the um, the radio dramatization, is the way that it's bookended with uh, Gaines's interaction with his wife, who's yeah. just sort of like, I thought we were gonna go on a nice date, and he's like, Sorry, honey, I got to go deal with this emergency. <laughs> Yeah, and, and then of course the thing that makes it out of date science fiction is he leaves the number of the restaurant he's gonna be at, which. Um, you know, plays heavily into nerves. The um, the nuclear power plant meltdown of uh, Lester Del Rey, where no one could get a hold of the engineer because he was out clubbing. Uh, <laughs> you know, in the the story, and uh, nobody foresaw pagers or cell phones. You know, but um, or a walkie-talkie. I don't know anything. <laughs> like if you're gonna be in charge of this stuff, maybe. Maybe have a radio. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, yeah, it was like, like, oh no, I left my wife at the at the dinner place last night and like she still hasn't heard from me. <laughs> right. Well, and 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 I think um, you know, those of us who like to, I mean, that's one of the things is this about reading out of date science fiction, is you're getting kind of a a view into what this guy living in LA in 1940 was thinking about this possible future and like you know you're extrapolating and getting a view into a very 
um, personal view of the future from from the past. And you know, his fifty years in the future is now decades in our past, which is just you know mind blowing when you think about it. So I, I don't know if I would agree that this story is about a possible future. I, I'm I'm kind of a William Gibson guy, you know. Uh, science fiction is always about the year in which it is written. I think that, especially since the engineering project is so implausible, um, that, you know, I mean, like, just like, how could it possibly be efficient to make these roads that roll? Um, I think that he's he's telling a story using a science fictional conceit about labor issues that were very current, you know, and about, and especially about, like, like I was saying, the problem of urban sprawl, the problem of cars, like it's just not sustainable um, to bring a middle-class lifestyle to like every American, you know? Sure. Well, yeah, and, and um, I, uh, you know, it's like that whole thing of where Don Wilhelm wanted um, Phil to put, Martian time slip a hundred years in the future and he didn't give a shit <laughs> you know about he was like Don Wilhelm was like there's no way we'll be living on Mars by then and Phil was like you know <laughs> whatever it's 1994 dude I don't know what to tell you although <laughs> I, I I always remember Paul Cornell we were talking about at a, at a convention was talking about Jerry Anderson and he felt one of the mistakes that uh, Jerry Anderson did on his TV shows was set his shows in a future which he would most likely live in, you mm -hmm. know, so people can then tell you what you got right and what you got wrong. Right. Well, and, um, you know, I think one of the joys of reading retro sci-fi is that you get this window into this surreal future that never was. So, uh, you know, I hear you, William Gibson, through Ted, but um, I think there's a place in between where um, science fiction exists, and 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 I I like that place in between. Um, now, uh, my thoughts on this being a science fiction Hall of Fame story, I think it is worthy. I think it's a better story. Than, well. It's probably my least favorite of the four I've read so far, if I was going to, to be ranking them. Um, it's a better story than Helena Loy. But Helena Loy like, does a lot of interesting things commenting on the 30s. Um, and uh, But if you're asking me, is this Heinlein's best story to be an entry in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame? I'm going to have to say that I might have gone with Universe his generationship story, although I don't know if that's novella length now that I think about it. But my first inclination is, is that universe is 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 a is a better short story or um uh what's the zombies one uh, that all you zombies all you zombies uh predestination that became predestination was adapted very well in predestination by the way. Um I think um all you zombies probably is Heinlein's best short story. But um, I could see why that didn't have the impact that the Roads Must Roll had. So I can also understand why it was here. Um, what say you, Juan? Do you think this is the best example of Heinlein's short fiction? And do you think it deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? I, 
I, I, I admire it, but at the same time, I felt there were better stories. You know, if we're looking at his early um, career, I mean, I think Requiem uh, is a better, it's a better story because it has a very emotional center. It's, it's the last Dee Dee Harriman who, and, and this was written before The Man Who Sold the Moon. So we have Dee Dee Harriman, a guy who created the enterprise of getting men on the moon and building lunar colonies. But yet, by the time he can get away from running the business, he's too old to get in a, into a rocket ship or they won't let him go to the moon for health reasons. And he so finds a way, he schemes a way to get on a ship. And again, spoilers for a 80-year-old uh, story. He makes it to the moon and dies there, but dies there in a way that he's bliss. I made it. I made it to the moon. I made it into space. And and I think that had, I, I'm kind of surprised that particularly to the, the six, you know, this was voted on in the 60s, if I recall correctly. I think they would have liked a more um, emotional res, resonant um, story rather than a a a very well-written um, device story or gadget story. Mm -hmm. And also, I would also say, I would then after that put, if this goes on, which I'd, I would, you know, talk about revolution and unfortunately, you know, dealing with a fascist government in the United States based on a religion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe too close to home. Yeah. Well, not um, in 1960. Not 1960. You're right. Yeah. Or 66 or whenever they, they voted on these. Right. Um, this was in the late 60s, but early 70s. Um, early 70s, I think. Um, Ted, do you have a Heinlein story you prefer? Well, I'm going to go against the grain here, and I'm going to say that I think that this is a great representative Heinlein story. Um, especially in terms of like Heinlein's historical importance as this sort of godfather of hard science fiction um, and the way that it is so accessible, it is so easy to read and, and kind of like get the, the, the picture, uh, the way that it, it kind of like dramatizes a social problem in, you know, the car thing, the, the union thing. Um, uh, I think that it's, it's, it's really a great first taste of Heinlein, although, I mean, I wouldn't argue that it's like a great first taste of his like, you know, literary um, uh, sort of style in terms of like, you know, the characters are a little bit flat and one dimensional. Uh, but in terms of it being like a great like science fiction story of like thinking about society, I, I think that it's a really great way in. Um, however, my favorite Heinlein story that I'll just give a quick pitch for is um, The Menace from Earth, uh, which I had in, in one of those, um, it was like an ex-library copy of uh, the short story collection of the same name. And uh, one of the things that was so memorable to me about The Menace from Earth, although I couldn't summarize it, was that there is sort of like sports on the moon that like take advantage of the like low gravity on the moon and the main character has this like wingsuit and she goes into this like gym where you can fly using this like wingsuit enjoying the like low gravity of the moon and so in terms of like Heinlein's literary style and characterization and especially the fact that it's like this empathetic treatment of a, of a woman character which is kind of um against the grain of, uh, of a lot of you know um 
hard sci-fi and, and especially like old school sci-fi that's all about great men you know um i think that that uh, that the menace from earth is a pretty interesting one to look at although i don't know if i would say it's the number one anthology piece <laughs> right well no i have read that one i i um i i remember remember liking that one too um well yeah and i'm not saying the story doesn't fit as far as that it's not worthy or valid i just you know, with a lot of these, I think of other uh, other stories by these writers that I just I, I prefer. Um, and uh, yeah, but with Heinlein, um, you know, his he, he had to be here. He had to be in the Hall of Fame. He uh, is so important. There's a lot of writers who are missing from the Hall of Fame, and that has to do with the fact that they you know, their uh, star or their, uh, you know, the knowledge of them kind of grew after <laughs> this time. Um, uh, it's a crime that Philip K. Dick's not in there, but it's understandable because he wasn't the success that he, uh, or, you know, his success came long after his, his death. Now, if you ask me, Norman Spinrad and Barry Moldsberg should be in there because they're favorites of mine, you know. Um, C.L. Moore is in there under a pen name, but I would I think she deserves to be there. Um, and Judith Merrill's there, but Lee Brackett is not. Like, how is Lee Brackett not in this? You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. But you know, it's one of those things. Um, so, uh, anything else on the roads must roll? I I I, I um, you know, I don't go incredibly long in these Hall of Fame uh, uh, episodes about these stories because they are short stories, but I think um, it's important to discuss each of these uh, and, and their role. And I do think that Roads Must Roll, what it plays in social science fiction is almost more important than, than, than um, you know, Heinlein, there's plenty of stories that could have come from Heinlein. And I think the role of, of tackling social issues is is the most important thing it's more so than the gadget in, in this story is the social issues in my opinion uh Juan uh any closing thoughts on Rose Must Roll as I said I mean it's a good story I I just felt that I guess the thing is Requiem hit me in a way uh that affected me in a different way and it, it hit a different key in it than this story uh would have I mean there's some interesting things but as i said it seems like as i said people tend to remember the gadget more than the social implications of it at least that's been my impression and i could you know prove me wrong yeah i tend to be the opposite i tend to look at <laughs> these social things but i like both uh ted roads must roll final thoughts so i think it's a great intro to heinlein but but it's definitely not it's definitely not his peak and you know, I'll leave you with an image. Um, while I was preparing for this podcast, you know, um, my girlfriend and I just moved into a new house that she bought, brand new house, right? There's this high wind and the power goes out. And we're hearing this like banshee wail of the like heating system, like groaning in the wind, which the which the the people that bought built the house for us assure us is normal. And the roof is like flying off the house. And I can't use my CPAP machine. And I'm just like, man, you know, it's it's really that like vision of society where um, from the roads must roll, where 
you know, just like a little bit, a little bit goes wrong and everything's breaking down. Right? Well, yeah. And, and um, I think Heinlein, you know, used science fiction effectively to look at these little cracks in society. Um, and, uh, and even when like Moon is a Heart's Mistress is a book that I didn't particularly like, but I understand the value of it. And even if I don't, even if Heinlein doesn't like tickle my fancy quite as much as a Spin Rad or a Le Guin or a, or a PKD, I appreciate his role in, in the genre and the history of the genre. So, um, all right. So this is our February um, episode of our monthly science fiction Hall of Fame. In March, we have Microcosmic God by Ted Sturgeon. Um, I'm working on a pretty powerful group of Sturgeon heads uh, to talk about this story. Uh, but for those of you who are not familiar with Teddy Sturgeon, um, he's a really interesting cat. Um, and I recommend uh, checking out his novels well you can um but the story is going to be a good one and um or at least i i suspect it will be a good one i haven't read it yet so i will be discovered i've read a couple ted sturgeon novels before but i have not read this story i've read more than human and what was it x minus venus minus one uh which is a really excellently weird uh new wave novel um, so, and I'm very familiar with the guy, but I have not read this story yet. Did I say that name wrong? Juan, you're looking at me like, I I'm trying to remember the story. I mean, the thing is, I'm a big fan of the Dreaming Jewels. I remember just somebody put out a new edition of that and I hadn't read it. And it was just, I just have really good, uh, memory vibes of reading that story, even though I don't remember it in great detail, which makes it fun. I can read it again, hopefully get the same, uh, reaction to it. I'm sitting here looking at my shelves and I don't know where the Teddy Sturgeon is, but I know I have that book somewhere. Um, no, yeah. I had a friend who was very passionate about uh, Ted Sturgeon. Um, and I actually gave her to collect. Uh, I forget. Somebody was trying to put all the Ted Sturgeon stuff in books in the 80s and 90s, and I got her several copies of it. And very famously um, wrote A Muck Time, the episode of Star Trek. And uh, I know from the, uh, when I went to do the DC Fontana research at the Roddenberry papers that he was very late turning in that script and made very, made much of the uh, staff of that show very angry. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what the hell is this Ted Sturgeon guy doing? He's late. Um, There's lots of notes about that. And then, um, uh, however, um, a lot of that final draft of that script was written by DC Fontana, actually. <laughs> so a lot of the things that you know or love and remember from that episode were Dorothy Fontana, actually, <laughs> um, because that script was super late, <laughs> which is funny. Um, all right, so uh, Juan, tell the folks uh, how they can find you if they want to discuss science fiction with you. Yeah, I'm on. I'm on Twitter, Macedon, and Blue Sky as Rainbow War 71. Uh, that's the best way you can find me. Um, 
I'm also on Facebook. I try to be interesting on my social medias. Um, and you I think no uh, obligation to be interesting one if you don't want. Oh, to I, I think you do. At least <laughs> you should try to be it. Uh, yeah, that's about it. I just do guest shots on other people's shows like you like your lovely show. Well, thank you, sir. And we definitely like having you. And uh, yeah, and if people haven't checked out that V episode, that V episode is great. It was a big panel, a lot of people. Um, and uh, uh, V was my favorite. It was one of my favorite shows of all time. So that's why it was episode number 100. Uh, Ted, how can the folks find you? So I'm on Twitter at T3DY. I don't consider an obligation to be interesting. I think the obligation is to be cantankerous and argumentative. <laughs> And uh, you can reach me by email at ted.hand at gmail.com. And you might find Ted and I, if you're a part of that uh, Philip K. Dick class that David Gill's teaching, uh, we're having fun hanging out over there being dickheads. Um, in fact, in a couple of weeks, I take over for a night and I'm teaching the Philip K. Dick formula, which is going to be super exciting. And we're um, talking about Dick's interest in alchemy. Yeah, so we're both uh, presenting over there, so you can find us there. It, uh, well, too late, because if you didn't register, it's too late. But we're having a lot of fun doing that class. Can you just sit in on a session, or is it on? <laughs> no, you got to pay for it, because Gil was uh, making up for, uh, he lost some classes teaching this semester, so trying to make up some income. So thanks to California state budget cuts um but uh i will say i will be teaching the formula at the philip k dick fest in colorado this summer and i will be filming that so people will be able to catch the, i'm gonna go more in depth in colorado anyways because i'm gonna have more time so um but you can also read about all that in my upcoming um book unfinished pkd which will be coming next year um so working on the final edits for that so for folks who made it this far you're awesome you're total nerds um and we'll see you next time for teddy sturgeon and um, i'm sure these guys will be back at other episodes of the science fiction hall of fame i'm trying to switch it up all over the place and have all kinds of different awesome people um thank you guys you guys were great and so yeah the roads must continue to roll so keep a rolling folks